Would you take your Bible this morning and turn to the Gospel of John? We're going to continue our time here in in John's Gospel, considering a couple more verses in his prologue. Uh, in the first eighteen verses of of John's Gospel, this lead in to uh, to to the Gospel here, verses one through eighteen. As you head that direction in your Bible, I want to thank. Uh, the many of you who spent time uh, preparing for and who participated in the the Heller's adoption fundraiser last Sunday. Um, Praise God, I think we were able to raise a little over $20,000 for them, um, which covers almost all of their, I think all of their costs for the rest of the way for their adoption. So again, thank you for everyone who donated something. Thank you for everyone who came and bid. Thank you for everyone who grabbed a meal or just threw a check in the basket. I know that the Hellers are are incredibly grateful uh, to you to you for that. Um, yeah, so take your Bible, uh, John chapter one. We're going to consider verses fourteen and fifteen. But as we have each week, we're going to read the entirety of the prologue so that we can uh, so that we can have it all in our minds as we as we explore uh, these two verses this morning. John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We're going to hone in this morning on verses 14 and 15 in particular and think about uh, the, the turn here in the prologue into something new, something a little bit different than we've seen so far. And I can think of no better verse than verse 14 to set us on a trajectory towards the Lord's table. Um, at the end of our time, we'll participate in taking the elements of the Lord's Supper together uh, at the end of, of our time this morning. But verses 14 and 15, I think, go together and they show us several things. But 
if you back up a little bit before we get to verses 14 and 15, you see some things that are happening, and we explored these. You see this morning, I, I titled my message, The, the Incarnate Word. Um, and if you remember back, I think to the beginning of September, when we started in John's Gospel, the first message that I preached on John 1, 1 and 2, we called it the Divine Word, because we see a, a bit of a parallelism here between Verses 1 and 2, which read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, we turn the corner, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so these two, uh, these two verses carry the weight of what John wants to communicate to us in the prologue, in the first 18 verses of his gospel, and really carry the weight of the themes that we're going to see over and over and over again throughout the gospel. But if we back up to verses 1 through 5 in particular, uh, we see that, that John emphasizes in verses 1 through 5, or affirms several really important things about Jesus. First, that Jesus is eternal. Secondly, that Jesus Christ was with God in eternity past. So he is eternal. He's existed for all of eternity, but then also he had perfect relationship with God the Father um, and God the Holy Spirit in three in one in this Trinitarian relationship in eternity past. There was not a time where the relationship was not perfect in perfect harmony with one another. And then uh, we also see right at the end of verse one, and the word was God. Jesus Christ is God. And this is the theme that again is going to run throughout uh, run throughout John's gospel. We're going to bump up against it over and over and over again. We're going to find Jesus claiming to be God over and over again in John's gospel, and we're going to view events that can only happen if Jesus is God. We can't get through this gospel and not affirm that Jesus is in fact God. Early church history was full of debate over this phrase. And exactly how it played out and what it meant. Um, the, the man who we craft our Santa Claus uh, after, uh, that man, uh, his name was uh, Nicholas of Myra. Um, in 325, in the first council of Nicaea, he punched uh, a man named Arius in the face over this debate. And, uh, and if you need to know the rest of the story, that side, one, Jesus is in fact God, as is explained here in John's gospel. Um, and, uh, and so there you go. That's who Santa Claus is, going after heretics. In, in the 20th century, though, this is not uh, an issue that, uh, that was resolved for many people, uh, even despite the, the, the orthodox positions of the church, even early in church history. In the 20th century, C.S. Lewis uh, spent time and came up famously with an argument for Jesus' deity, for the fact that Jesus Christ is God, uh, which he derived, uh, I'm assuming, directly from John's gospel and other places in scripture as well. Uh, Lewis said on his BBC radio show that when confronted with Jesus in the Bible, you have three options. Jesus explicitly claims to be God, and so since he explicitly claims to be God in scripture, uh, we have three options in response to it. He's either a liar, he just made it up, 
He's either a lunatic or he's a lunatic. He was insane, uh, which undermines his claim to be God, or he is in fact who he says he is, and he is the Lord of all creation. He is actually God. Now, Lewis was intending to point out how silly it is that some people who would claim to be Christians would actually claim uh, that, uh, that Jesus is not God. Although men and women do this all the time. But you cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. You cannot be a Christian and deny that Jesus is God. In plain and simple, it would be ridiculous to do so. And if someone tries to tell you that they're a follower of Jesus, but they reject Jesus' deity, and they don't believe that he is God, you can simply reply that you don't make a habit of following people who are liars. Because Jesus says that, uh, that he is God, and to follow someone who claims to be God but isn't is immoral. Uh, the Guardian published an article on September 22nd of this year, of 2020, titled, Cult Leader Who Claims to Be Reincarnation of Jesus Arrested in Russia. Uh, for the last 30 years, a man by the name of Sergei Torop uh, has been living in Siberia claiming to be Jesus. He was ex- arrested for exhorting money from his followers, um, extorting money from his followers, uh, which is a pretty good, pretty good indication that he's not Jesus. And, and he also abused his, his uh his followers emotionally. And then in 2002, he actually did an article, 18 years ago, did, a, did an interview and put in an article in The Guardian, same publication, and said, I am not God, and it is a mistake to see Jesus as God, but I am the living word of God the Father. Everything that God wants me to say, he says through me. This is news to the Apostle John. The Apostle John rejects everything that he just said wholesale. And But when we are faced with someone like Sergei Torop, uh, we have to uh, make a claim. It would seem pretty clear to us, I think in this room this morning, that he is a lunatic and a liar, both. And that Sergei claiming to be Jesus and not God is in direct opposition to what God's word tells us in John chapter 1. Uh, so I think that we can say with full certainty again that Sergei Torop is, in fact, a pathological liar. But we can't ride the fence. We have to say that there is absolute truth here. He can't be, he can't be who he says he is uh, and, uh, and make the claims. And, and uh, we can't say that he is who he says he is and also fully understand and know the claims that John says about Jesus here in John 1, 1 through 18. So before we, we, before we consider, though, uh, verses 1 through 5, and even though we did that because chronologically they come earlier, uh, in, in church history, people were heavily talking about Jesus' deity. Uh, before they were heavily talking about Jesus' deity, they were actually talking about his humanity. Because this is the place where uh, it became difficult for the early church and people in the early church to get their heads around some of the theology that's unpacked here in John 1, 1 through 18. It would be ultimately resolved in church history that Jesus Christ is fully God, both fully God and fully man. 
But one of the earliest heresies, even the Apostle John ran up against this, and it's likely that this heresy had popped up in in church history when John was writing his gospel, and it absolutely was happening when he wrote his three letters and and the book of Revelation. But one of the heresies that popped up in the newly formed church that that they had to battle uh, is docetism. Docetism is simply the belief that Jesus' human form was not real, but it was only an illusion. It was just an illusion. That he that Jesus, Docetism said, Jesus isn't of the stuff that we are made of. Flesh and bones were not his composition. He didn't breathe air or uh, or had a have a heart that beat or have to clip his fingernails. Jesus was made up of something different. That's what Docetists would say. And when people saw Jesus, they weren't actually seeing him. They were just seeing an illusion or some kind of weird, weird projection. They weren't seeing something real. Docetism is actually uh, thought to come into existence as a result, or one of the theories is that it came into existence as a result of a, a, a reaction to John chapter 1, verse 14, or at least it took shape when John wrote this. The question, though, is why would that heresy become popular in, in the early church, in the first century? And I think the answer is simple. Because what John writes here in verses 1 and 2 and then in verse 14, those two things are really hard to get our heads around and actually are incredibly offensive. That God, Jesus Christ is God, but then he also took on flesh being fully God and fully man. How do we wrap our heads around that concept? Fully God, fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And it just doesn't, it, if, we, if we want to logic it, it just doesn't make sense. It's like reasonably, it, it doesn't make sense to our finite minds. But again, the, the apostle John makes it absolutely clear here in chapter one. Jesus Christ is, is God and he is fully man. And, and those letters that John writes at the end of the, that fall at the end of our New Testament, he affirms this again. Second John, Second uh, John, verse seven says, "For many deceivers have gone out into the world; those who do not confess the coming of Christ, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist." Also in 1 John 4, 2, and 3, by this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You see that term Antichrist in both of those instances. John is using the Antichrist language. He's simply referring to opponents or enemies of Jesus Christ. Anyone who is an opponent to Jesus Christ is an Antichrist. Those who do not say that Jesus came in the flesh are Christ's enemies. They made that abundantly clear. Because by saying that Jesus came in the flesh, they intentionally or unintentionally undermine what Jesus came to do. By, by saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, they were undermining what Jesus really came to do. So when we read John 1.1 and when we read John 1.14, we need to see that the Apostle John wants to make two things very clear to us. Jesus is fully God, 100% God, and Jesus is 
100% man. And the truth that Jesus is fully human is what we want to focus on this morning by considering verse 14 and by considering verse 15. The, the truth that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, this is what we commonly refer to as the incarnation. The incarnation. Um, and because we're getting close to Christmas season, uh, we will inevitably use that language more often. But the incarnation just means taking on flesh. You see the word, the Latin word there is carnes. Uh, it's Latin for flesh. Or if you took high school Spanish or just love carne asada steak, you know that there is the, the word carne there means, means meat or, or flesh. Uh, Jesus is God's word who took on flesh. Jesus is what we would say God's word incarnate. So the question that this text then helps us to answer in verses 14 and 15 is why is it important that Jesus came in the flesh? Why do we need to come down so heavily on this understanding that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Not that he was just an illusion and just popped up and did his thing and, and then floated away. But why is it important that Jesus came in the flesh and is made of the same stuff that we are made of? Flesh and bones and a beating heart and fingernails that grow. And here's what John 1, 14 and 15 communicates. And these are the points that will follow this morning. Uh, the first reason as to why it is important that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, I'll just give you three. The first is the incarnation happened so that we can dwell with God the way that God intended. So that we can dwell with God the way that God intended. And the second reason the incarnation happened that we see in this text is so that we can see what it means to be fully human. And then thirdly, uh, the incarnation happened so that we can see the supremacy of Christ and all things. We'll unpack that as we move, move forward. But let's take the first one. The incarnation happens so that we can dwell with God in the way that God intended. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, this, this theme, uh, God dwelling with his, uh, his image bearers, those who he created uh, to have relationship with him, that's us. Uh, if, we, we, if we go and read all of scripture, we see this idea come up over and over and over again that God intends or had the intent of dwelling with his people. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2, where God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden, you see them dwelling with God. Before sin entered the world, they lived with God in an uninterrupted way. And this is what God intended, that they would walk with him, that they would talk with him, that they would have intimacy with him, that they would perfect relationship with him. But, but sin is the thing in chapter 3 that enters into the world and drives a wedge between Adam and Eve and between their creator, God. Now, if you have any human relationships, which I'm sure that you do, I hope that you do, uh, if you have any relationships on this earth, you know that you don't live in perfect harmony with anyone. Because even if you're the person that you're closest with, you're a parent or a spouse or a child, uh, you don't live, there are things in your relationship that are hidden, that are not apparent. No matter how well you know someone on this earth, sin always comes into play and there are areas of our lives that just aren't known by other 
other people, primarily because we're selfish, prideful individuals because of sin, but also just because we have limits placed on relationships because of sin. So, so we understand and we grasp that. And so when sin enters the world, the same happens with God. God knows us fully because he is God. He is our creator. But our ability to know and understand and commune with and dwell with God is interrupted. Uh, even though that's the case, God continues to pursue his people throughout, throughout the Old Testament. So uh, God leads his people, say, out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, and as he's giving them his law and his commandments in Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, as they're poised to uh, hopefully take the promised land, God promises to walk with his people if they live and observe his commands. And he, God says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and, you will, and, I, and will be your God and you shall be my people. God is saying, I'm going to dwell among you despite the broken relationship that we have because of sin. Um, continue to observe my commands and I will make my dwelling among you because you are my people. Of course, the Israelites fail at this over and over and over again. Uh, if you just read the first five books of the Old Testament, you see the just grumbling people kicking the ground and kicking rocks and frustrated over every little thing. But God still dwelled among his people. And the place in which he dwelled in the, in, in the first five books and then later in the Old Testament in the, in, in the, was uh, first the, t- the tabernacle, which is a tent, and then later in the Old Testament, King Solomon builds the temple. And when King Solomon builds the temple, uh, he, when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And in 1 Kings 8, we see that scene unfold. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So this this is a picture of how God dwelled with his people in the Old Testament. First in the tabernacle and then in the temple. After post sin in the garden, the tabernacle and the temple, these two constructions uh, that were among the Israelites, God would dwell with them in those places. Uh, and so when we get to John chapter 1, verse 14, and we see this language here, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, uh, the original readers of this would have immediately made this connection, partially just because linguistically it makes the connection for us. Uh, the word that we translate or is translated in your Bible as dwell or dwelt among us, uh, it could literally be translated made his dwelling or pitched his tent or built his tabernacle. And for John's readers, they would have thought immediately uh, about the place where God dwelled. Immediately where the, the place where God dwelled. And the word became flesh and lived in his tabernacle among us. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among his people. This is the thing that they would have heard. But again, this wasn't a building like the tabernacle or the temple. It wasn't this building. It was a dwelling rather made of flesh. It was a living, breathing man, the God-man Jesus Christ. And sometimes Christians, when we read the Old Testament, we fixate 
on some of the scenes, these epic scenes that unfold in the Old Testament where the glory of the Lord fills the temple and the smoke is there and it forces the priests out. They can't even minister because, because the glory of the Lord is so apparent and evident. But what's being communicated to us here in John 1.14 is that something better is here. John's point is that Jesus Christ is a better expression. Jesus Christ is a better expression of God's dwelling with man. Better than smoke-filled tabernacles or temples, Jesus came so that we could, what John writes at the end of verse 14, see his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the way that we see the glory of God in this man is through the reality that he shows us what it means to be fully human. So that's our second point, is that the incarnation happened so that we can see what it means to be fully human. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And throughout the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even here in John, we see very clearly uh, several things. Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He ate and he drank. He got tired and he slept. He felt pain both physically. He felt pain emotionally. He wept. He rejoiced. And these are human things that we experience also. If Jesus was just an illusion, why do we have all of these different references to these, these very human, human experiences? There are other things, though, that Jesus experienced and accomplished that may not line up with ours, but are only possible if he is fully man. Uh, J.C. Ryle, a, a 19th century pastor, author, writes, Having become flesh, taken on a body, he prayed read the scriptures, suffered being tempted, and submitted his human will to the will of God the Father. And finally, in the same body, he really suffered and shed his blood, really died, was really buried, really rose again, and really ascended up into heaven. And yet all this time, he was God as well as man. And all of this is only possible. All that we see here written is only possible if Jesus is fully man. And so we see that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And through that, it highlights our own brokenness. Through that, it highlights our own brokenness. Because in order to be fully human, you hear people say this all the time when they make a mistake. They say, uh, well, I'm only human. But the reality is what it means to actually be human is what God intended for it to be human. To live in perfect submission to his will and perfect obedience to what he commands in the freedom that he can only give. And so when we see uh, Jesus Christ, he is fully human. The one who uh, submitted fully to the will of his heavenly father. Who obeyed perfectly. Who walked in the statutes of, of, of God. And so in order for us to be hu fully human, we must reflect God's image and reflect his glories perfectly. But we don't do that. We don't do that. And the reason we don't is because of sin. And so in order to be human, we must live perfectly according to how God tells us. Not according to our path, but according to his. And deviation from God's design for how to live is sin. 
And sin causes the reflection of God's image in us to be disrupted. But Jesus always lived in perfect step with the will of God, undisrupted by sin. And as a human, like Ryle says, submitted his human will to the will of the Father perfectly. Jesus is God and shows us God's glory perfectly because he is full of what John says here, full of grace and truth. And, he, and in him we see the glory of God evidenced. And because Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience to the will of God the Father, he was able to be more than just an example. We are actually freed as those who have received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We are actually freed to be more human than we were prior to Christ. We talked about the new birth last week. In new birth, we are actually more human than we are prior to it. Jesus was able to be more than just an example because he lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly Father He was able to stand in as a sinless substitute for us. The Lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sin of the world and who frees us then to live according to what God intends. Where we fail to be human, to reflect the glory of God, Jesus did so perfectly. And through perfectly bringing us into God's family, we have the ability now to be fully human. The final thing, though, that we see here, why the incarnation is important. The incarnation happens so that we can see the supremacy of Christ in all things. What I mean by that is just Jesus comes before everything, plain and simple. We see this clearly in verse 15. So your Bible probably puts this in parenthesis, uh, likely because it, it feels like an aside. This is John the Baptist. John bore witness about him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's kind of a confusing statement. But what he's saying is, John, the gospel writer, is pointing out the eternality of Jesus. He's showing us that Jesus existed in eternity past. Uh, but his physical birth, the taking on flesh, came after, after the birth of John the Baptist. But he ranks before him. So Jesus comes before him eternally, and he outranks him hierarchically. As it relates to the incarnation and the revelation of God's glory in Jesus, John is saying that Jesus comes before everything. That is, to believe in Jesus as the one who can make us right with God is to declare without any reservations that Jesus is better than everything. It's Jesus over everything. Because when Jesus took on flesh, he was taking on the very thing that would be flogged. It would be torn to shreds. And by a, uh, by a crown of thorns that would be placed on his head. He was taking on the very things that would have nails driven through hands and, and feet. He was taking on the very thing that would be pierced from his side. And out of it would flow real water and real blood. Not just fake or illusionary water and blood. He was taking on the very thing that would be entombed. And then, after three days, would walk out of the grave and appear to over 500 people over the next 40 days. God's plan of redemption required that Jesus took on flesh in order that our sin might be paid for. Because God's plan requires real sacrifice. I think 
The Apostle Paul sums this up perfectly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8-11. through 11. He says, And being found in human form, taking on flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It is through the taking on of flesh and the humiliation that comes through that. For the word of God, the one who was in the beginning with God and who is God, to take on flesh and the humiliation that comes on it is the, 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 the precursor for his exaltation as the one who possesses the name that is above every other name. It's, so it's Jesus over everything then. That's what this means. It's Jesus over everything. The supremacy of Christ in all things. God's perfect plan. Jesus taking on flesh. Tempted yet with sin. Suffered yet without objection. And Jesus brought God's perfect plan to completion. And therefore, God highly exalted him. It's Jesus over everything. The question is, as we explore the incarnation, is what does it mean for us? And these three things, hopefully, will just drive us right to the Lord's table. Uh, The first thing is this. Uh, We have the promise of dwelling with God for eternity in Jesus Christ because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus models this reality by taking on flesh. He came to earth from heavenly perfection to live among broken creatures. And by doing so, what he does is ensure that we will dwell with God forever. You don't need to live in fear. You need to trust that Jesus paid for your sin and makes you right with God. And that no one can take that. This is God's intent and he will bring it to completion. So we need to set aside everything that prevents us from seeing this unwavering truth and ask God to embolden us by his Spirit. The Apostle John heard it from the throne in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what it looks like to dwell with God for all of eternity. All of those things in verse 4 will be stripped away. Death, mourning, crying, pain. They will pass away. This is what it looks like to dwell with God in intimacy through eternity. And the incarnation shows us how that is made possible. The, The second thing that I would say as a takeaway here is that when we have that promise of dwelling with God for eternity in Jesus Christ, We can live lives of radical obedience and self-sacrifice. Because when you have unwavering assurance that that will be your eternity, when you have unwavering assurance, you can set aside self-pursuit, you can set aside self-preservation, and you can radically take the gospel to men and women in your community across the world. Thinking of the interests of others before your own is what this looks like. Living lives fully submitted to the will of God given to us in Scripture. Men and women who do this sell out. It is no longer about self-pursuit and self-preservation. It is about radical and emboldened 
gospel proclamation in our community. And this is, friends, this is what it looks like to be fully human. This is what it looks like to be fully human, to follow Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, into self-sacrifice. To follow him into obedience. Not because we have the ability to just try harder and do better. That's not the message. The message is that God has made you new in Jesus Christ and has freed you to live a life of sacrifice and obedience. Joyfully. Not as a duty or obligation, but as an incredible blessing and benefit. The final thing I'll say is this. Because of the incarnation, Jesus understands you. This is incredibly good news. Jesus understands you. He knows you intimately. He knows what you feel physically, emotionally. And he sympathizes with you. Consider Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. The author there writes, Therefore he has been made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, draw, or with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows what you're going through. I don't know what you're going through this morning. Jesus Christ knows And he understands exactly how you feel as a result of it. The difficulty and the sorrow, the challenges and the disappointment, or the joy and the celebration. Jesus experienced those things because he took on flesh. Because he was made of the same stuff that we are. Bones and skin and fingernails. Jesus knows these and he knows you. Like I said, I hope this would drive us to the Lord's table and and, and as we consider together uh, what the Lord's Supper represents, we have to consider the reality that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Because what's res- represented in the Lord's Supper is real blood spilled, shed for us, in order that our sins might be removed. And a real body broken on our behalf that lived in perfect obedience in order that we might be made right, that we might be justified before a holy God. Those are the elements that are made up of the little wafer thing and the juice that we're about to, to take together. And uh, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we participate in the elements together, this is what we're doing. Together, all of us in this room, and for those who call Buffalo City Church home who did this at the 9 a.m. service, we are proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ, who through his substitutionary sacrifice has made us right before our, our God. And so I'm going to invite you to participate.
Mark and, and Maddie are going to come up and, and play. Uh, and, and when you feel as though uh, you're prepared in your heart after reflecting on the things that we've talked about to receive the elements, go ahead and do so. They're on the table back behind the door. If you didn't pick them up on the way in, feel free to just at any point go back there and, and pick them up and, and bring them to your seat. But when you feel uh, as in your heart that you are prepared to receive those elements, go ahead and do so, reflecting on the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on your account. This is for followers of Jesus. If, if you're not a Christian, uh, I would love to have a conversation with you, but uh, this, is, this is an act that followers of Jesus participate in together regularly and what we do here at Buffalo City Church. If you don't know Jesus, uh, I would love to, or if any of this stuff that we talked about this morning sounds like craziness to you, please come talk to me. I'd love to love to have a conversation with you more about it. Kids in here, uh, parents exercise discretion for your kids. If they've made a credible profession of faith, by all means, invite them to, uh, to join you. If not, use it as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Let me pray. And, uh, and when you're prepared, go ahead. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among his creatures. May we as your people, as we reflect on the truth that's communicated to us through the participation of the Lord's Supper, may we see evidently and clearly that you have made a way for us in Jesus Christ. That it's not just a message of work harder, try harder, do better, Lord God, but it's a message of free grace given to us. And it's a message of the ability to be free, to, to submit our wills entirely to yours. God, may we as your people be more fully human as we go from this place, as you've transformed us more into the image of Jesus Christ, the one who took on flesh and dwelt among his people. God, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.